Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Hello, and thanks for listening. Today's interview will focus on HIV and AIDS to recognize World AIDS Day, which was last Thursday, December 1st. Here with me is Maggie Campbell, the Director of Communications and Development at the Health Equity Alliance, or HEAL, in Bangor. Maggie coordinates publicity, media, and fundraising for HEAL and provides direct service, including HIV and hepatitis C testing, and sexual risk reduction counseling. Today we'll discuss the history of the Health Equity Alliance as well as stigma and prevention. And be sure to listen to the end where nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier answers questions about long-acting reversible contraceptions in our Ask Mabel segment. Hi, Maggie. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, last week we recognized World AIDS Day on December 1st, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's still so important to recognize that day and to be educating our community about HIV. Yeah, absolutely. So World AIDS Day is sort of an opportunity for um our community to pause and to honor the lives of people who were lost to HIV and AIDS related causes, but it's also an opportunity for us to push education about prevention. I think um, we're at a point now where a lot of folks, unfortunately, um, think of HIV and AIDS as being a struggle of the past, um, and that contributes to a lot of the issues that people living with HIV today face, as well as issues that we face around education and prevention, um, and making sure that people get the services that they need. So for us, it's very important to continue to honor World AIDS Day for that reason. Um, when these issues start to fly under the radar is when we see spikes in transmission. And so the Health Equity Alliance has been doing this work for quite a long time, formerly as Down East AIDS Network and Eastern Maine AIDS Network. Do you mind just giving our listeners a brief overview on those organizations, the history of HEAL, Health Equity Alliance, and what you are up to now? Yeah, so the Down East AIDS Network was founded in 1987, um, and it was founded in rural Down East Maine. It was basically a response to a community of folks who are seeing their loved ones pass away um, of AIDS-related causes and their frustration about the fact that the government was not acknowledging the virus, they weren't providing any support. Um, And so really it was a group of friends and chosen family who started keeping files on their friends and family who were dying um, and trying to retain as much information as possible about their care and about what had happened to them. It was really just a file cabinet in the living room and a bunch of people who were passionate and committed to trying to find solutions. 
um, for their loved ones. And so in 1990, um, the government started to offer funding for organizations like the Downing States Network. So they were able to formally hire um, a director and start to turn that file cabinet into something a little bit bigger, um, helping people access the services that they needed um, after they were diagnosed with HIV and AIDS. And so the rest is history, kind of. I mean, we we developed into an AIDS service organization, or an ASO, um, of which there are several in, in Maine. And we are the second largest. We now serve 14 out of 16 counties. Um, so over time, the Downey States Network um, grew, and it sort of had its heyday, and then um, funding for ASOs started to decrease. And the staff and the executive director of Dean Downey States Network um, kind of took a look around and said, should we close our doors or should we try to expand and um, try to expand our services so that we can stay afloat? And that was what they chose to do. So they adopted the Eastern Maine AIDS Network, EMAN, which was up in Bangor, um, and merged. And there was sort of an expansion of, at the, of the mission at that point in time, um, looking at communities that were disproportionately affected by HIV and looking a lot more at social justice and the intersections of social justice and public health. So that's how we came to the Health Equity Alliance, and we consider ourselves a health justice organization. So we look very closely at all those intersections. We still are an AIDS service organization, but we also offer a lot of other services um, and maintain that commitment to HIV, AIDS, prevention, education, and care as one of our primary pillars. So as we're talking about HIV um, and World AIDS Day, one of the things I like to talk about is stigma. It's something we focus on a lot at Mabel's. Um, we focus a lot around abortion stigma, but in general around sexuality. Um, and I was wondering if you would talk a little bit more about how stigma impacts those living with HIV and what are some of the things that HEAL's doing to combat that? Yeah, yeah, great question. So. The first thing I think of when I think of stigma in the HIV-positive community is isolation. Um, and I think a lot of folks who occupy marginalized identities um, have that in common where stigma equals isolation, which equals um, poor health outcomes, both physical and mental health outcomes, and a lack of access to care. So especially in rural areas, like the areas that we serve primarily, people who are living with HIV and AIDS um, may face, you know, a threat to their reputation. They may face a threat to the connections with their families and friends if they're open about their status, um, which causes a lot of anxiety, um, causes a lot of depression, and a lot of isolation. So the, the more isolated people are, the harder it is for them to get the services that they need. And I think that's something, like I said, that all marginalized groups sort of share, but especially with um, in rural areas where there is such a lack of community, just by virtue of there being far fewer people, um, it can be really, really difficult for folks. So the other thing that plays into it is that people living with HIV and AIDS are actually more likely to be living at those intersections of other marginalized identities, um, which just allows the stigma to kind of snowball out of control. So if people also are um, experiencing racism or sexism or they're they have... Um, issues of instability with housing or employment, um, that can create even more issues for them, especially in rural areas. So 
Um, what do we do to combat that? We try to create as much possibility for openness and community connection as possible. So we provide support groups. We support um, a group called Voices Heard that organizes an annual social gathering for people in Maine living with HIV and AIDS. And most of the folks who attend that social gathering are coming from more rural areas and the counties that we serve. And we try to speak as openly as possible about the issues that we confront in our daily work and the issues that our clients confront. I think that's the the biggest thing we can do to combat stigma anywhere is just communicating openly. Um, so again, I was saying that we focus all, often on abortion stigma, but one of the things I pay a lot of attention to is how it's portrayed in our media. Mm -hmm. um, so how it's in film and TV. And I don't know as much about how HIV or people um, with HIV are represented in TV and film, but I do watch a show that has that as a storyline, and mm -hmm. I was wondering if you know how it's normally portrayed in pop culture, if it does help to normalize HIV, help reduce the stigma, or does it add to the stigma? So are you thinking by any chance of how to get away with murder? <laughs> yes, I yeah. am. So if any listeners have, have seen that show, um, uh, the character who is diagnosed with HIV on that show as a young man, um, a young gay man. And when I, I watched that show too, and when I saw that storyline start to emerge, I was really excited. I have been really happy with the way that they dealt with it because I feel like they um, are much more honest and open about it than a lot of other portrayals we see of folks living with HIV in the media. But it also does show how stigma affects the community as well. Um, so there's... Let me step back a little bit. There aren't a lot of examples of folks living with HIV in the media. And often those storylines are kind of swept to the side um, or they are made into enormous tragedy, um, which really takes away from the audience's ability to see the resilience of people living with HIV and AIDS. Um, last year, when Straight Out of Compton came out, there's a storyline in that movie about Eazy-E, the rapper, who has a sudden diagnosis and death from AIDS-related causes. Um, and that was really um, interesting to see because it was the first time I had really seen um, a major media piece focus on HIV and communities of color. But even so, that was a very small tributary for the whole storyline. It was... Um, it was not the focus of the main piece. So there's also um, a character on Transparent right now who's living with HIV, and that was that storyline was an example of how um, how incredible the stigma is that people faces because be, people face because when she um, discloses to a potential partner that she is HIV positive, um, his reaction is sort of the typical reaction that we kind of see from the general public. Um, of, of fear and of stigma and of, you know, taking a step back and not being ready for that, saying it's too much to handle. Um, and so we do see that a lot. But I have been, I have been encouraged to see um, storylines focusing on younger folks who are being diagnosed with HIV because we do see that um, folks between the ages of 20 and 40 are the most likely to be transmitting HIV right now. Um, so the more we can be talking about that, the better. Yeah. And at HEAL, um, what do you, how do you have the conversations with folks on how to talk to others about disclosing their, that they have HIV or to help them with that process of telling partners or potential partners? 
Yeah, so when we do testing, um, we do what's called risk reduction counseling, um, and we talk a lot with folks about what barriers they may face to practicing safer sex in their life, whether their status, what, no matter what their status may be. And for myself, as a, when I do risk reduction counseling sessions, a lot of what I like to talk to people about is what their communication is like with potential sexual partners um, and what kinds of steps they could take to have more open communication or to um, encourage um, folks to go and get tested together um, or to really set boundaries around who they're going to be in sexual relationships with depending on um, whether those people are open to that type of communication and open to the testing and, and really to prioritizing safety. Um, I'll talk about this a little bit more later probably, but um, we always, I always say that there's, there's at least one little step you can take to be safer no matter what. Um, so it is really hard. I don't want to discount that. It's really difficult to have those kinds of conversations with people um, given all the stigma that people face. Um, but we do offer support in that way, um, sort of talking people through um, how the conversation might go, who can they talk to about it, who do they feel safe talking to about it, and how they can protect themselves. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and WERU. Here with me today is Maggie Campbell, the Director of Communications and Development at the Health Equity Alliance. We are talking about World AIDS Day. Another really important part of your work at HEAL is the harm reduction philosophy, or that's what I've gathered. Do you mind explaining what that means and why that's important to your mission? Yeah, absolutely. So harm reduction is um, a very broad term. It's basically a set of principles that can be applied in a ton of different ways to many different types of work. And we apply harm reduction principles to everything that we do at the Health Equity Alliance. So that's our HIV AIDS education and care, um, our harm reduction department, which supports people who are using drugs, um, and our LGBTQ services department, we all operate using a harm reduction philosophy. So basically for us, it means that we approach our interactions with clients and with community members um, with respect for their agency, and we try to base our relationship off a, res off a respect for their needs and their goals um, instead of having a preconceived um, idea about what the outcome should be. So, for example, if we're serving someone in our syringe exchange who is injecting drugs, we don't approach that relationship with the assumption that they should reduce or stop their drug use. We approach that relationship um, trying to meet them exactly where they're at without judgment and see how we can help them determine their own goals and help them meet those goals, no matter what they may be. Um, so, yeah, really prioritizing the needs of our clients over um, perhaps what society dictates they should have as goals, instead focusing on their personal goals. Um, and a phrase you'll hear a lot when you're talking about harm reduction is meet people where they're at. Mm -hmm. So that's what we try to do across the board. And we are coming towards the end of the time, but I think a great way to end would be talking about um, ways of prevention. So mm -hmm. we know using condoms are the well-known effective way of reducing the risk of transmitting HIV. Are there other ways? Yeah, so safer sex practices, um, we often think of condoms first. 
Um, those are an excellent way to prevent transmission. Um, there's also PrEP, which is uh, stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a medication that's taken once daily that has 99% effective um is 90, 99% effective at reducing or preventing the transmission of HIV. Um, so you can, if you are in a relationship with someone who's positive and you're negative, or even if you are um, looking for other ways to practice safer sex, um, talking to your doctor about PrEP is a great um, thing to do. And you can also contact us and we can give more information about that. Um, also, transparency and communication honestly, are huge in prevention. Um, so being able to have those conversations, um, making sure that you're regularly tested if you face any sort of risk factors. Um, we recommend that people get tested at least once a year. Um, and making sure that you're having open communication with your partner. Um, there are also other more nitty-gritty ways to talk about reducing risk within um, sexual interactions. So, for example, using plenty of lube, that's really important, even if you are having um, unprotected sex. And also, you know, some more, like I said, some nitty-gritty things that you might want to talk about with a risk reduction counselor so we can provide that. PrEP is a big one that we're really pushing for folks. Um, please talk to your doctors about PrEP. And then also communication, transparency, and testing. We know that one in eight people who's HIV positive is not aware of their status. So the safest thing that you can do is know your status. Awesome. Well, thank you, Maggie, um, for being on Reproductive Left with us today. And do you mind just um, if people want more information about HEAL, how do they find you? Yeah, the best way is to visit us online, and our website is www.mainhealthequity.org. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Thanks for being here, Terry. Great to be here, Abby. So since the election results, um, we've seen an increase in women thinking about IUDs or LARCs, which are the long-acting reversible contraceptions. So there's a fear that um, people will lose health insurance or lose birth control coverage under the next administration. So as women consider getting their IUDs before January 20th, um, let's talk about the pros and cons of the different methods. So let's go with the first one. Um, we'll talk about the Paragard IUD. What are some of the benefits to the Paragard? Let's hope, Abby, that <clears throat> this uh, situation uh, with the new administration doesn't cause us to lose our contraceptive uh, coverage by insurance. But um, certainly the LARC methods... Um, if we could help a client um, access um, an IUD that might give her between three and ten years of uh, contraceptive benefit prior to uh, the new administration coming into uh, power, um, it might make it easier for her to access that in an affordable um, in an affordable fashion. Um, the Paragard is an IUD that gives you up to 10 years of reliable contraception with over a 99% uh, effectiveness. Um, it contains no hormones, so for women who uh, want to avoid their use for medical or personal reasons, that's probably um, the IUD that they would want to choose. One of its advantages is when it is removed, the client's fertility is not impacted. Her cycles uh, will not be in any way affected because there's no hormone 
uh, in that IUD. So return to fertility is um, immediate. Uh, it is a method that is typically not detected by a sex partner. So it allows for a contraceptive uh, method to be at less risk of sabotage. Uh, it does allow for more spontaneity in our sexual intimacy uh, because it's always there providing contraception and you don't have to think about it. Uh, it can be used by breastfeeding women. It can be also used, the Paragut is the only IUD that um, qualifies as an emergency contraception. And um, then you also have the benefit of possibly preventing the unintended pregnancy right then, but also you have then 10 years of contraceptive uh, benefit. And it can be used by women who have never had a uh, baby. Some of the negatives, though, are that it can increase um, menstrual bleeding and cramping. So if you already are dealing with heavy, painful periods, it's probably not the IUD of choice uh, for you. Although for some women, um, if they do you know, want to try to hang in there with it in three to six months, um, it may improve. Um, but if you have really crampy and heavy periods, it, it probably isn't your best choice. Reasons why um, you probably wouldn't get an IUD, and this really applies to any IUD, whether it's the Paragard, Morena, or the Skyla, uh, if you have abnormal uterine formation, um, like a bicornuate or double uterus, or if your uterus is inappropriately shaped internally, uh, affected by like a fibroid, perhaps, uh, changing the uh, uterine's capacity uh, to tolerate an IUD, it might not that obviously wouldn't be a method you could uh, use. Uh, if you have a copper allergy, uh, which is unusual, but that would prevent you using the Paragide as it does have copper on the IUD itself. Uh, if you had a history of ectopic pregnancy, um, since there's a slight increased risk of ectopic if a pregnancy occurred with an IUD in place, so if that is your history, it might be um, something to talk about um, with your uh, healthcare provider uh, in a little more depth before pursuing the, the pair guard. Great, thank you. And let's um, talk about the marina as another option. So what are the benefits of the marina IUD? Contrast to the Paragard, the Mirena IUD is actually the only IUD that got medical uh, FDA approval for management of menstrual symptoms like heavy periods or painful uh, periods. Um, it is also over 99% effective in prevention of pregnancy. This IUD is good for five years. As with any IUD, less risk of uh, contraceptive uh, sabotage allowing spontaneity because it's there and you're not having to think about it, may also be used by uh, breastfeeding women. Some of the disadvantages, um, however, are uh, mostly the irregular bleeding pattern. Mm -hmm. Although, uh, as with any IUD in the first three to six months, it's at its worst and often will adjust. Um, about 20 to 30% of women will stop menstruating altogether with the Mirena IUD. This is not an unhealthy um, issue for their body, but for some women it makes them anxious and they're concerned about pregnancy when they don't have periods. So in a case like that, if you want to do a pregnancy test every couple months just to reassure yourself that it was negative. Um, but again, it is not dangerous to not have the period in this case uh, because it's hormonally suppressed by the hormone in the IUD. 
Um, return to fertility after removal of a morena, though, uh, different than the Paragard, it can take up to a year for your cycles to regulate. So um, that is something to just be aware of when you're making your um, method choice. If you have a history of acne, um, you might want to factor that in because we do have clients that feel, and it's in the literature, that acne may be increased with the Mirena. Um, some women do find that their appetite is stimulated, and if that's the case for you and you eat in response to that, you may find that you're gaining weight with the IUD. Um, although I don't have a lot of clients that are personally telling me that that happened uh, with the Mirena. If you have a history of headaches, we do know that Mirena will increase the uh, incidence of headaches or migraines, uh, so would want to probably discuss that with your provider. It's not an absolute contraindication, but certainly a point to consider. If you have any history of liver disease, um, a hormone-containing IUD may not be your best choice, but it's something to talk about with your uh, provider. And although the package insert doesn't... Um, encourage this IUD to be used for a woman who hasn't had a child is absolutely appropriate um, to do. Great. And what? how is the Skyla different from the Mirena? Some people have referred to the Skyla as like the little sister to Mirena. It is slightly, it's two millimeters um, less wide and two millimeters less long than the Mirena, which is a very insignificant difference, but it has a little bit smaller inserter. And for a woman who hasn't had um, a baby or for a perimenopausal woman, it might be a little easier, less painful insertion. Um, it's 99% effective in prevention of pregnancy, uh, good for three years. Uh, may be used with breastfeeding women. And I was thinking, well, a breastfeeding woman's obviously had a baby, but I'm, I was thinking that maybe for a woman who'd had a C-section mm -hmm. or had some cervical um, abnormalities, even if she'd had a child, the Skyla might be an easier IUD for her to tolerate. Um, it is slightly less likely to be expelled than the other two IUDs because it's a little bit smaller mm -hmm. and can sit up higher, perhaps, in the uterus. Um, it does not have FDA um, approval for management of menstrual disorders, though, as with the um, Mirena. It secretes 14 micrograms of the progesterone daily versus the 20 uh, micrograms with Mirena, which is felt to be necessary for the menstrual um, discomfort and uh, bleeding issues. Um, Negatives might uh, indeed be that the bleeding pattern uh, may actually have more spot days of spotting than with the Mirena. Um, but the uh, side effects of acne, mood swings, weight gain, and headaches may be less uh, because it has less progesterone. Uh, one of the issues with Mirena and Skyla is there may be a slight increased risk of ovarian cysts. And if you've had that history, it would be good to discuss that with your provider prior to choosing that as a method, although it is not an absolute contraindication. And so the last one I want to talk about is not an IUD, but it is considered a LARC, um, and that's the next plan on. Mabel Wasser Center is gifted to have um, 
Lindsay Piper with us, who's a nurse practitioner that is not only inserting uh, Nexplanauts here at our office, but has trained multiple healthcare providers to insert the Nexplanon. Um, we are putting in Nexplanons um, quite frequently here at the center. It's a small toothpick size uh, plastic implant rod that contains progesterone medication um, that is time-released over three years, uh, providing uh, 99% effectiveness in prevention of pregnancy. It's inserted by a trained healthcare provider under the skin of the upper arm. Um, after numbing the insertion site, she's able to slide the implant under the skin with a special applicator. The benefits are much like that of Morena and Skylar. Um, the most common uh, side effect is the irregular bleeding pattern, which can last six months. Um, women who have never been pregnant are an ideal candidate for um, the next Nexplanon. And um, if for some, reason, uh, for some reason a woman just didn't feel she wanted to have an IUD but wanted to have um, a long-term method, this is another great option and not have something in your uterus. I think that it's um, important to recognize that other countries are using the LARC methods at a much higher rate um, than they are here in, in uh, the United States with really good success rates and great client satisfaction. Great. Thanks so much, Terry. That's it for today. Do you have a question for Ask Mabel? Simply email us at educate at mabelwadsworth.org. If you want to listen to past episodes of Reproductive Left, you can find us on WERU.org in the archives. We're also on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth. And you can subscribe on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. I'm Abby Strout, and please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org.